listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to our live episode of Belaboured, our bi-weekly podcast on work, workers, and the labor movement, hosted for nine years and nearly 250 episodes at Descent Magazine. We recorded this episode live at the Labor Notes Conference on June 17th, digging into the question of time on the job. The pandemic has drawn renewed attention to the issue of working time, as the boundaries between home and work blurred for many of us. And for many frontline workers, the pandemic meant dealing with erratic schedules or forced overtime hours, or they had to either take time off to deal with their illnesses or to cover the shifts of colleagues who were out sick. But even before COVID-19, working time was a key issue for workers organizing in many sectors. And not too far back in labor history, the demand for shorter working hours and a shorter work week was a central focus of the labor movement. Controlling our time at work is not just a matter of getting paid fairly for hours on the clock. In our increasingly globalized, technology-driven, automation-driven economy, work has for many tended to consume more and more of our lives, exposing us to intensifying degrees of stress and often coming at the expense of our families, communities, and civic institutions. The pandemic has put those issues into even sharper perspective as we increasingly question whether the time we spend at work is worth what we're being paid, is worth the physical or psychological stress, or is even worth risking our lives. We recorded an hour-long conversation with our three panelists and then opened the episode up to audience questions at the end. Please keep in mind that this was recorded live, and so there might be some fluctuations in audio quality. Also, before we jump into things, a quick reminder that if you like what we do here at Belabored and want to support independent journalism on labor issues, you can pitch in to support us at patreon.com slash belabored. Memberships start as low as $3 a month, and it all goes toward helping make sure that our small production team also gets paid fairly for our labor. Plus, you can get some free swag designed by artist-activist extraordinaire Molly Crabapple. That's patreon.com slash belabored. And with that, let's dive in. Our guests are Carlos Perez, a teacher in Durham, North Carolina, who organized for Falcon Wednesdays in his building, days with a lightened teaching and learning load for teachers and students. Jessica Wender Shubo, president of the Brookline Educators Union, which went on strike recently over quite a few issues, including class and prep time for teachers. And Donna Jo Marks, a member of the Bakery, Confectionery, Tobacco and Grain Millers Union, or BCTGM, works at Nabisco and helped get legislation passed in Oregon that restricts employers from imposing overtime on workers without five days' notice. Carlos kicked off the conversation, followed by Jessica and then Donna Jo. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me, first off. I'm a high school social studies teacher in Durham, North Carolina, as was mentioned, and At my high school, we have been working on setting up a workplace committee over the years that we now call the Jordan Workplace Organizing Committee, or JWOC. And after (laughs) about a year plus of being in the misery of remote learning, we came back into the building at the beginning of the school year. uh, And that first month was a really tough transition, as I'm sure you all have heard all the horror stories about what schools have looked like uh, during this past year. Really challenging transition for workers, for teachers, students, everybody involved. We probably saw more fights uh, in the first month of school than we would typically see in a year's worth of school. Um, I personally broke up, I think, four of them uh, close to my hallway. And so one of the things that 
we tend to do in Jaywalk at the beginning of the year is host general assemblies to try and get a sense for what are the most widely and deeply uh, felt issues in the building. And so we did that in late September and brought in uh, as many non-administrative staff as possible, all went door to door in the building. And we gave everyone markers and hit up the marker boards and asked them to chart what is it that they're seeing and feeling both for themselves and their coworkers. And some of the more you know, obvious stuff is about feeling overworked, stressed out, all of that. But then one of the things that kept coming up related to that was, why don't we have uh, Wellness Wednesday anymore? So during remote learning, part of the schedule was on Wednesday, it was quote unquote Wellness Wednesday because everything has to be alliterative, of course, uh, for it to be meaningful. So Wellness Wednesday was basically, we don't have to be on Zoom and you can basically do what you need to do on that day. It was great. We got a midweek break. And there was no, like I said, formal uh, transition process. It was to get back into school. It was just, we're going to toss you in the deep end. Good luck. We'll see how it goes. And we got to make up for learning loss, right? Um, And so there was that pressure to, quote unquote, make up for the learning loss. And after the meeting, we started to go door to door uh, following the meeting and to see if there was actually interest in trying to reclaim Wellness Wednesday, uh, to have a sort of midweek break. Because the sense in the room was not, okay, we want to get paid more, anything along those lines. It was, we need to work less. And the students do too. And so we went around and it was clear that that was going to be the issue. It was going to be Wellness Wednesday. We set up a subcommittee within our workplace committee to come up with some proposals. They came up with two. We went door to door again in the building, brought as many workers out as possible to present those options. We voted on them. And then we essentially, and and I think it's important to bear this in mind, North Carolina is a right to work state uh, where collective bargaining is illegal for public sector workers. But in that environment, we effectively set up a bargaining committee and sent them off with a demand from our workplace committee to take to management and negotiate this demand around reinstating Wellness Wednesday. And we were able to do do that successfully. We didn't get the demand that we all voted on, but what it effectively amounted to was, and it ended up becoming called Falcon Wednesday, partly because the school district's only concern was, of course, around marketing. Uh, So they didn't want other schools to say, oh, why did they get Wellness Wednesday again? And we didn't. So it became Falcon Wednesday because we're the Jordan Falcons. So, And so basically what it meant was the entire spring semester, every Wednesday, teachers in the building were not allowed to teach new content. And students more or less understood that because there was not new content, they didn't feel as much pressure to go to school. So we did have less students in the building, which was kind of the intention. You know, I had students who chose that day to go to work another job, support their families. Or we had the theater department put on plays for students. I would play Uno with my students. We'd go on hikes. We'd play Ultimate Frisbee. They would paint the benches outside. We'd basically just hang out with each other and enjoy each other's company and chill for one day out of the week. Or I could sit at my desk and actually get some work done that I'd have to do within the limited amount of time I do have to grade 100 plus assignments and so on. Um, So it was uh, an effort to really cut into the core underlying issue, which was that we were all overworked, stressed out. And the solution to that was to work less, to do less school, formal schooling. So 
there's more to it than that, but that's the sort of broad outlines of it. Boy, that's exciting. We should do that. So uh, Brookline Educators Union, uh, Brookline is surrounded on three and a half sides by the city of Boston. And we did go out on strike last month. And yes, we had as one of our key demands uh, that each day in a seven hour plus workday, you should have at least 40 minutes where you're not assigned something to do. And we've been working on that for about six years. And uh, we uh, finally got it in one night following this walkout, which was supported by 95% of the uh, membership of the union. Uh, We also got money um, and we got some racial justice language which is related actually. But uh, what what I am struck by as the press in greater Boston, it's illegal to strike in Massachusetts if you're a public employee. There have only been uh, two or three strikes in the last 20 years. And so there was uh, quite a lot of interest in this event. Brookline's a place with the most PhDs and MDs in the country, I'm told. And so one thing uh, that we learned is time is not neutral. Uh, some people's time is just worth more than others, and uh, it's it's con- it's arranged, counted, and managed differently. You go up to the fifth floor, we call it, where the administrative offers are, and you will see people. You know, they they look like they're deep in thought, but they are not having their minutes double and triple booked. And so we had been talking about this for some time, and my favorite press account had the bullet points of what the union was saying and what the <laughs> district was saying. It said the union wants forty minutes of unassigned time. The district said it's too complicated to schedule. So um, I I will just leave it at that by saying that uh, word is that there are algorithms that can create a fair work week uh, that can plug in, by the way, put the people like the kid, you know, the teacher in these classrooms for sections of Spanish and of social studies, you know, for these many minutes and make sure there are 40 minutes that aren't assigned. Something tells me the software exists. Um, but the answer from the district is flexibility. And so uh, what we have is a post-COVID understanding that being able to make you do anything we want whenever we want it because life is unpredictable and we want – it's frankly exactly what I heard the REI uh, CEO say why he didn't want a union, and that is he wants to have relationships, as you probably have heard, uh, that are flexible. And so uh, we did, uh, in fact, get an incredible response from the public, it seems, that this just didn't seem like that unreasonable demand. Uh, So we did win it that night. Uh, And I'll stop there for now. We can talk about uh, what does it mean to ask women, a women's profession, to do more and more and more for children as if doing that is uh, not actually any expenditure of labor whatsoever. Hello. My name is Donna Jo Marks. Um, I'm from Portland, Oregon, and I'm a worker at Nabisco, a member of BCTGM, Local 364. We um, pretty much were known for the Nabisco strike that happened. Uh, For 41 days, we were on strike, and we went state to state, uh, five states. We won, and uh, during the strike... um, we had a lot of brothers and sisters of other unions coming down to talk to us. And one of the, um, a member from the AFL-CIO came and asked the questions of why we were on strike, the different reasons we were, we, we were striking. And one of the things that we said was uh, working conditions. And when they asked about the working conditions, we broke it down and talked about our forced overtime. 
and the disciplinary actions that happen when we turn it down. We could be at the time clock and they can say, hey, we need to force you five hours. And if we turn it down, uh, we would get points. And it's a progressive. Some people could get suspended, fired. But there's, there's a progressive disciplinary that uh, happens. Well, when they heard this, um, they went and um, amended a bill, uh, Senate Bill 1513, and added um, where... The, uh, the companies have to give a five-day notice when it comes to force overtime. They can't just force us anymore. And I was part of that. Me and two other of my brothers and sisters testified, and um, it passed at all levels. And in 2023 in Oregon, it'll affect bakeries and tortilla plants. The main goal is for it to hit all of the state of Oregon versus just us. But, you know, you got to start small to get big. And Right now, I think it's going to affect almost 6,000 workers, at least 5,500. But we can't get in trouble. They have, to, they have to come to us and say, five days in advance, you're going to be forced over. Not only just that, they have to tell us what the job is. Because, you know, if there's no guideline, they'll say on Monday, you got to work on Saturday. And we don't know what we're doing. So they have to have a plan. Uh, the companies have been getting away with for a while when they realize it's cheaper to force you over than to hire the right amount of people you need. So this bill was a very important bill, and hopefully we can see it you know, spread through the other, other states to help other workers not to have to be disciplined for saying no at the last minute. So when you talk to other workers about controlling their time, what are concerns that you often hear? Um, what, do, uh, what do rank and filers tell you is their chief concern uh, when thinking about time and what time means to them over the course of a workday or over the course of a weekly schedule? And is it primarily about fair compensation for their time? Or is it um, about just reducing the overall volume of work that they're doing? Is it about having more days off? Is it about having more flexible schedules that work in the workers' favor? And how does this translate into collective bargaining demands? So in the beginning in Nabisco, Saturday and Sundays was time and a half and double time. And you rarely got it. It was, um, woohoo, I got overtime. And somewhere along the way, they decided because we didn't want to um, do alternative work week, uh, they said, okay, well, we'll do 12 days on, two days off. And it was still okay because, you know, with some overtime that we got, and they had enough people at the time that people used to actually get laid off until they were needed. Uh, then people start retiring and they weren't hiring. Then when COVID hit, we seen a whole nother ball game. Um, who would have thought cookies and crackers were going to be in such a high demand, right? <laughs> but the kids were home, and people snacked, and people gained weight, and people were stressed. And we made money on top of money, and we worked. Not only did we work the 12 days on, two days off, on our off weekends, they would work us. Sometimes we would work 28 days straight. And everyone above us thought, oh, but you guys are getting compensated for it. But at what cost? Your family? We're in a higher tax bracket now. And it just we were tired. They gave us two more dollars an hour through co- uh, for the COVID pay, but only straight time. So on overtime, it was still the two, $2. And I want to say after three months, two months, they stopped it. It just was an ugly time and people were tired. And it wasn't safe. It just wasn't safe to be so exhausting, especially for the lower senior people who were a little younger, who had families at home, 
who will work in graveyard then get told you got to work five hours over and then get told you got to come in three hours early. It just was no rest for them. And it was a horrific working condition. Unfortunately, we got used to because it had been happening for so long. We got used to it. We complained about it, but you know, we would tell the new people, new people come and this too shall pass. But, you know, is it fair? Because I went through it, they have to go through it. It wasn't. But we didn't understand the power we had at the time. So we just did what, you know, the bullies told us to do because we didn't want to lose our job. The biggest complaint was the overtime. The overtime was so bad that a $60,000 job went to some people made 120000 That's how bad it was. And it wasn't, a, um, it wasn't like, ooh, I got a bonus. They worked. They worked hard. I worked hard. So um, when we realized we had this power, when, when the AFL-CIO got involved and we were able to testify to help bakeries and tortillas, we understood a power that we had to change the law, that if they heard our voices and we spoke versus just some politician, if the actual people spoke and fought for this bill, that we can actually make changes. And um, once 2023 comes, as far as collective bargaining in Oregon, there won't be a need for that because the law will be in our favor. So that's the good thing about Oregon right now is that we just got some amazing laws passing in Oregon. And hopefully, like I said, we can spread it state to state and make it bigger. Throwing money at a problem of time is a dangerous thing because it's never going to be, uh, on the one hand, enough money to actually cover. So I talked about triple and uh, double and triple booking the same minutes. So in other words, you have three times the number of things you're supposed to get done. There's only one uh, opening of time in which it's supposed to happen. And in education, uh, there's a tremendous amount of a manipulation, I think, about the language of professionalism. And so uh, presumably a professional, many and increasing numbers of whom are unionizing for obvious reasons, uh, the idea is that you're not on a clock and that you find the way to make it work. So the language we heard for years was, we respect you. We know you'll get it done. You'll find a way. And uh, this is supposed to be a version of respect. But uh, as we looked more and more at the degrading piece of this um, patronizing and manipulative uh, language, we started to say, you know, there are only 24 hours in a day. Not there are seven and a half, but um, this work, if it cannot be done during the workday, will have to get done at midnight. You can't continue to um, refuse to understand the intensification of work, not just its amounts. And so what people said was, there's no amount of money you could pay me uh, to destroy my capacity to actually have a meaningful uh, and quality life. And I think through COVID in particular, one of the most uh, demoralizing things for educators that we've heard about, uh, not just in in the district that um, my local is, a part of, but uh, in the statewide discussions in our progressive caucus, is that people with more uh, high status professional jobs said to educators, I work a lot of hours, why shouldn't you? And I actually, this is a very tough one to, to cope with. Um, we're all just equals here. You know, we're just people. We're just, this is, there are no class strata here. And, uh, I actually learned this in a book that I really enjoyed, uh, called worked over about what's happened in this culture. 
And um, the author says, not only do people have more status, in other words, if I'm a surgeon at a hospital and I get to control when I do my surgery, I got to go and I come and I have a lot more control over my time. And I have a teacher taking care of my kids while I'm doing it and other people who are doing the work of sustaining families that cannot get the care work done themselves, then uh, somebody is gaining more status and more money off of the exploitation of the sort of less uh, powerful uh, so-called professionals. And so the sense of disrespect grew over these these months. And I, I think that um, this idea that we're all just people... <laughs> It's really dangerous. Yeah, I would echo a lot of what uh, Jessica just mentioned in terms of the ideology of professionalism and the sort of shadow that it casts over education. I think there's also a particularly, uh, you know, strong gendered element to uh, education as well, um, where it comes with a sort of, uh, you know, martyrdom complex and sense of mission and sacrifice that in a predominantly, uh, you know, female workforce is sort of the norm and expectation. And so I, I think in conversations with some of my coworkers, it really does boil down to this sort of gap between the expectations that come with this notion of professionalism and the way that they're actually treated on a day-to-day basis. And so when people are being asked to do more with less, it really doesn't line up with how they expect to be treated as a quote-unquote professional. And there's a really strong frustration with having to, well, I think it boils down for a lot of people just feeling like their time is not respected. Like you said, you can't throw money at the at money at this problem. It's more so that, okay, you're asking me to have my grades in on this time, get my attendance in, do this uh, useless professional development training on top of 25 other things. But then you're also asking me to do this extra duty, stay longer for this, um, take on another committee, so on and so forth. There's just not enough time in the day to complete all the tasks. And I think that's what really frustrates people. I mean, anytime we have a faculty meeting, you can just sort of see the look on people's faces because oftentimes it's happening during our planning period, which is the only time of the day we have to do 55,000 things. So, yeah. Yeah, that just reminds me of um, this line from Selma James, who is one of the founders of the Wages for Housework movement. And she writes about, like, they take our time, which happens to be our lives, right? I was also listening to an interview with Ruth Wilson Gilmore recently where she was talking about what prisons do is they take people's time, right? Which, again, is our lives. But when workers ask for time off or shorter hours, you often have to justify it by saying what else you'll be doing right? Time off has to be justified as like work-life balance, as in like the care work you're doing at home. Um, Or because time off will make you more productive, right? There's a lot of cases for a shorter working week because then you will do more in the hours that you're working. So I wondered if if you guys can talk about that and the, the way you sort of have to justify wanting your time to be your own. This is absolutely, you know, key, I think. Um, you know, I'm old enough. I'm I'm 62, so I was around for something was sort of called the radical women's movement. Um, you know, we we, and I think of it was not our invention to say what if we just want to take a nap. I mean, I, you know, I think it was Marx's son-in-law who wrote the right to be lazy. So the 
challenge of convincing uh, educators who are in my day-to-day world that they are worth having control over their time and that that is not uh, going to hurt. It's like a zero-sum game. If I'm getting uh, control of my time or, or, or in what I do with it, someone is losing. You know, this is, this is just a basic logic in how we have absorbed neoliberalism, you know, this idea that everything is quantifiable and everything ought to be counted. And therefore, you know, if I get this much, you got less. And I don't think there's an easy answer to that except the language of dignity and of self-respect and to um, practice it. I, I, it's hard for me to describe how different um, our district feels after a strike and where it felt. I would say that not two weeks before those over 1,000 educators walked picket lines and actually uh, signed, you know, made statements and voted for a strike, knowing their jobs were on the line, knowing that the union could get bankrupted by the state uh, with fines, that they said, this is the first time I feel a sense of self-respect, and certainly in the last couple of years and maybe longer. The, the other thing that I, that I would add about that is that many of them said, I have never even met some of the people in my building. We have schools now, and this is we're, that are so big, and they are, um, and this is all very, very deliberate to create um, uh, these teams. The way that uh, the redesign of education to grade level teams, and I should I should mention about that fight over the forty minutes. That what the district did was to um, take these sometimes they call prep periods, line them up so that a grade level team had them at the same time of the day, and then call it a common planning time. And we said, no, you're stealing the forty minutes for work that you expect the grade level team to do. So now it's sometimes called distributed leadership. So now we're going to have educators run the school for us uh, on top of being teachers. So they're not just going to teach students. They're going to actually have to get together and, you know, and then of course it's all about data. So we're going to study data. So count, 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 count. And I think the challenge for us is to say, we don't mind counting as long as you don't mistake the count, like of minutes worked and of pay that's due and of time that should be protected, as long as you don't confuse that with um, quality of life and like human human experience and collapse the two. So I'll pass it on with one last memory this brought to me as a, in my early 20s where someone told me this saying, my life is work more than my work and my work is more than my job. And so, you know, we, we might want to talk more about this, but when, when management takes over all social values, when they have decided they are in charge of racial equity, they're going to decide, they will determine the definition of racial, they, well, they don't use the word justice, they say, you know, equity, because it's about test scores, you know, then, then we are in, in big trouble. And I think, frankly, and it's come up today, we, we need to talk about class as well as we can talk about race. Or we need to say, we need uh, difficult and courageous conversations about class and property, not just about race. And let me tell you, (laughs) in my little meek efforts to get that to happen in a meeting, it's much harder to get anyone to talk about uh, their class privilege than their whiteness these days and um, to look at the relationship.
Yeah, so this question actually speaks to one of the core challenges that we had in implementing Falcon Wednesday. So even though we knew that this was a popular program, and we know that because we went door to door, we had mass meetings, we all voted on it. Um, when it came down to putting it into practice, there were a vocal minority of teachers who really struggled with the notion that Wednesday was about taking a step back. Um, instead, they were frustrated by the fact that they couldn't teach their content, uh, or they were frustrated that now they've got to think about different enrichment activities for the students to to engage in on that day. And there were even some students who literally didn't know what to do when they were in school and didn't have new content. They said they were bored. They didn't know what to do with that free time. They did not know what to do with it. Uh, and so we literally had to have meetings with these students and with some of these teachers about what to do. You know, I remember telling one of my coworkers, I was like, you can do nothing. You can literally show up to work and just hang out with your students and figure it out when you get there. You know, don't worry about planning another lesson. That's the whole point. You don't have to spend your evening planning a lesson. And they were really struggling with coming to grips with that. So that was honestly, in addition to some of the institutional barriers that we faced, I think that has become uh, one of the one of the bigger hurdles uh, on top of just sort of like the capacity to 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 manage it in in, in practice. Um, but it was staggering. Again, I'd say it was a minority. Most people, once it started to get in motion, were able to adapt. Uh, but that was one of the bigger hurdles that we didn't fully anticipate uh, having to deal with as as it went forward. For me, um, I used to feel guilty if I missed a day from work because um, corporate America, I will always call them bullies, the, the narcissist, they make you feel guilty for taking a day. You have to explain why. You have to make up a lie sometimes. Um, you're Co-workers make you feel guilty because they didn't hire enough people, so now they got to cover you, no matter what the reason is. And you owe no one an explanation for the time you miss, not one person. But you find a way to give them one because your guilt gets to you. And I felt like that for many, many years if I missed a day. I have a daughter who has autoimmune disease, and um, because of the FMLA I have, I, I did miss a lot of days. And I got to a point where I didn't explain it to anyone because it was none of their business. But they felt that it was not because of the individual, but because of corporate America making people feel guilty for missing work. Although the management will miss and the management will never work as many hours as, as you do. Some of our complaints to um, our higher ups was, you guys aren't here on the weekends. You're not working the hours. And they started out coming in at midnight, coming in on Saturdays, that lasted maybe three months, and then it was over. They know what they're doing. They know how to work us crazy, and they don't care. So, you know, I had to understand the value of my time because I don't want to be gaslighted into feeling guilty for missing work. We have um, in Oregon, we get another great law that got passed. We get... 40 hours sick leave uh, paid that the, the company has to pay you. That went into maybe two years ago. 
people start using that during COVID. They start taking it because you don't have to give them HIPAA laws to protect us now. You don't have to give them a reason why you're gone. Um, and so people start using that time for self-care, mental health, just because we were working so crazy. So understanding the value of your life and your time, when you're working your eight hours and then getting forced five hours, then you got to go home and do family and take care of. You have no time for you. And the mental health part of it, it's real. You're tired. You're yelling at your people at home because of what happened at work. And you're just not a pleasant person to be around. And at some point you can't fake it. One end is going to feel the pressure of you not having your time. So it's very important to find that time any way you can get it. And I've, I've, I've found the time. And like I said, I'll fight, continue to fight and speak about time. And, and because it makes a difference when you see people breaking at work, they're breaking at work because they don't have their time. When you see divorces happen, they're happening because there's no time to give to your family. You'll see it with the police officers, firefighters, healthcare workers. You'll see it. There's no time. So um, you got to reclaim your time. You got to find a way to do it. I think we may start with Donna again for this one because I wanted to ask specifically about the issue of forced overtime. For people who have never been in a workplace where that's an issue, explain how overtime can be forced or explain how it's legal to actually coerce those overtime hours out of someone. Because, um, you know, if you look at uh, the original, you know, uh, wage and hour laws, where overtime statutes come from, um, it's supposed to be voluntary. It's supposed to be a mutual agreement between uh, labor and management. So how did we go from something that you do voluntarily for extra pay to something that you're actually being forced by your boss to do for you know weeks on end? Well, you know, the companies got smart. <laughs> uh, we were asleep and they came in and they got smart. So, you know, being in a union, we have a contract. And we agreed to be compensated for the weekends, Saturday and Sunday. We used to be a 40-hour week. But there's, there's no law that says how many days that you can work. In Oregon, it's not. There's not a real law. It's just more courtesy than anything else. The law comes with hourly. And in Oregon, um, there is a law that you can't work past 13 hours. Now, they find the loopholes because you can't, it says you can't be forced 13 hours. So for people who decide to, I want to make a little extra money and sign up five hours, they'll force them two more hours. So it'll be now a 15-hour shift because they volunteered for the five. They weren't forced. So they find little loopholes to force us to do more. As far as the 12 days on, two days off, that's just been in place since they started it, uh, I want to say probably about 2008. But it hasn't been this bad. Um, it's been consistent, but we were working, like I said, 28 days at a time, and there was nothing we can do because the law doesn't say how many days. As long as we're compensated, that's, that's all they see. So, you know, it's, it's about what you negotiate in your contract. That's where your power comes. And we never thought that we needed to change the language to where you you have to stop at so many days. And now we did change some language, which is they can't force you more than 20 hours in a work week. 
So for the lower senior people, Monday through Friday, they can't be forced more than 20 hours, but they still are forced to work those weekends. And we say it's forced overtime because it's mandatory for us to work the weekends. And until a law can get passed that you only can work so many days in a row, I don't know what else to do um, as far as negotiating it in our contract, which is going to be hard for some people because they've learned to live off that overtime. And that's the trick, too. People start living at that means. So um, the companies have gotten good at understanding people's behaviors. And, um, but we're got, we've gotten good at saying we're tired. And it took COVID for us to get tired. Trust me, everyone in every industry who continued to work for the good of COVID. So that's what they you know, told us. We, we believed it for a moment. But until then, um, you know, it has, it's about changing laws. It's about doing what we did for the forced overtime, getting in there and, and being a part of a law changing. And that's how I can see a change happening. One of the um, changes that happened under corporate ed reform was revamping of ed- educator evaluations and supervision evaluation. And this is where control, to me, the, the question of forced, of control, uh, is so critical because um, if you feel like you're going to pay a price if you don't do something, they don't necessarily have to uh, threaten you uh, overtly. But the truth is, right under the surface, they are doing just that. So the in Massachusetts, and there are versions of this, I'm sure it'd be interesting to know about Durham and uh, North Carolina, that, and that is it says we're going to have a professional culture standard. So we're going to have, you, you have to teach and, and never doubt that the, la- the language of social justice has been hijacked by um, these bureaucracies and by what I find, you know, just so I don't get in trouble for trashing liberals, I will say corporate liberals. <laughs> and that is, yeah, I can say, no, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to meet in those meetings during my prep time, you know, I'm got, or I'm not going to stay till, you know, two, three hours later. But when it comes to that evaluation, well, you haven't really been a team player. So going back to this issue of the intensity of work, we have many situations, especially in the pandemic era, in which uh, there's a real fixation on productivity and sort of the rate of work, the pace of work, you know, uh, maybe one prominent example is uh, what Amazon workers are expected to do with speed up, right? So this is in logistical industrial workplaces. This is often seen as uh, just a way of intensifying work, right? Um, within a, Even within the same number of hours that you're doing, right? So can you talk about how intensity of work factors into the demands that you put forward? Um, how do you How do you sort of frame uh, your organizing around not just the overall number of hours that you're putting in or schedules, but the actual experience of being pressured to do more in less time? Yeah, I can actually speak to another kind of concrete campaign that we took up in our building that is related to time and and being overworked. So we used to have uh, pre-pandemic, we had parent-teacher night, and at my school... What it would look like is, you know, and a lot of teachers get to work fairly early. And so, you know, you show up 6, 7 a.m., 8, whatever, and work full day. And then if you're if we're doing parent-teacher night, you'd end up, most teachers would end up staying at the building because it wasn't worth 
driving back home and then coming back for parent-teacher night. And so you're effectively working a, a double shift well into the evening. And the way it was set up, would we would have um, a similar bell schedule just made for parent-teacher night where we'd say, okay, first bell, you go to your first period teacher and you visit them and then so on and so forth. We wouldn't get any food. We just were sort of like on a conveyor belt, you know. And so that would usually happen on a Tuesday, which meant you worked a double shift early in the week. And so it would screw over the rest of your work week, essentially. You would feel miserable the rest of the week. And I knew I was feeling that way. Um, And so the next morning when I was in the copy room, I started asking my coworkers if they also uh, were feeling tired and overworked and so on and discovered that I was not alone. And so we started going door to door um, and seeing, started to come up with, well, ask people, well, what could we do differently? And so one of the simple campaigns that we took up early in the workplace committee's history was changing parent-teacher night to where instead of having it on a Tuesday, we had it on a Thursday. Instead of having a bell schedule, we made it just in a, in a defined block of time with no bell schedule and just parents could go and visit whatever teacher they wanted to visit. And we got fed, you know. It was a a simple way to take up an issue that typically year in and year out, teachers would just complain about the next day and then we'd move on and we'd just do it again. And every year it'd be this thing that people would complain about. So that was uh, an early campaign. And then I think related just because this was brought up earlier about just the sort of value of our time and those little minutes we're able to steal away from our bosses. Um, One of the things that really stood out to me most um, early on when we had uh, Falcon Wednesdays was that, you know, I I just recently um, had my first kid and in the mornings, uh, oftentimes she would sleep in later. Uh, I'd leave before she even woke up in the morning so I didn't get to see my kid or help um, get her ready for the morning. And it would always frustrate me. But when we had Falcon Wednesdays, those mornings, I didn't feel as much pressure to get to work early. And I could just wait until she woke up um, and get her ready in the morning. And getting to see my daughter before going to work was something that came out of our organizing. And you cannot put a dollar sign on that. It's something that I, I, I cherished as one of the a, a big victories for, for me personally. And I know, uh, having talked to other educators, that that was true for them as well, that they were able to spend a bit more time with their families, whether it was in the mornings or after school, just not feeling as much pressure to stay up late and get things ready for the next day. It makes an enormous difference. What my company would do uh, to get the most out of us is they would pit each line at each other, um, day shift, swing shift, day shift made this much. So the swing shift, you know, it's a competition. They want to make more. And that went on and then it would be plant to plant, you know, of uh, Chicago's number one, making Ritz. We want to be number one. So we will work harder. And then if we won, we got a pizza party. <laughs> it's always a pizza party. Pizza or cupcakes oh, or donuts. And, um, you know, we were asleep. We we didn't realize um, what was going on. We were tired, though. Um, so on top of that, you know, we're working all this overtime, and we're trying to keep up with numbers that aren't realistic. And they start speeding the machine up. 
to make more. And so they would speed the machine up or make the ovens go faster, but then warehouse would still be running at the same speed. And there start being breakdowns on top of breakdowns on top of breakdowns. And that's when we start realizing the madness that we were a part of. And we stopped working so hard. We came together and we we come and we work and we we don't do, we do our job, we just don't overdo our job. For a company who doesn't care about us as they're getting bonuses enough to buy new cars and we're getting pizza parties and T-shirts and um, things that did not do anything to help us be with our family. So um, it's all about the money. It's um, Nabisco used to be a family-oriented place. It used to be very much about family. And once the corporate world came into play and understood their assignment, was to, which was to make more money, they stopped caring about us as part of the family. A lot of the supervisors who used to be there that we consider family have retired, and we have a lot of new people coming in who are just trying to hold on to their jobs, so they're doing whatever they're told. Now we have a high turnover rate of supervisors. When we used to, they would stay just as long as us and retire, but not anymore because the company only cares about the bottom dollar. So, you know, if you get injured, they don't care. They'll deny your claim. You got to fight it. We'll tell them this is something's wrong here. This is why this is not going to work. They won't fix it. They're reactive, not proactive. And most companies are. They'll deal with the workman's comp when it gets there. So, um, again, it's about coming together um, with your coworkers and having an understanding. You don't have to work this hard. We're all union. Where I'm at, um, we all make the same amount of pay. Nobody makes more unless it's a classification job. So you don't have to work that hard. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to feel. I used to hate when they told me this when I started 30 years ago in the industry. Slow down. We all make the same amount of money. I'm like, oh, they're so lazy. You're going to feel it later in your body. Oh, not me. I'll be young forever. I'm 56 and I feel it. Mm -hmm. And I spread that word and I tell that story to tell people, just pay attention to how everybody else's work and work at that speed. If you get hurt, report it. If they speed it up, let them know, hey, my shoulder hurts. Report everything because they do get in trouble at some point about safety. So if you, if you make it a safety issue, you'll see a lot of changes happening sometimes. But you got to do what you can to slow them down because they're going to try to get everything out of you by speeding stuff up, you know, as you adding more work on. Um, you got to stick together. You got to be in solidarity with your coworkers to understand that you guys, we are the workers and we control how the work flows. We, we have the power. I wanted to say, you may think that it's different in education, that it's not like a factory. But the, um, the dynamic you describe is exactly the same. And I really, I really think this is a struggle for who's going to seize back the definition of what it means to be human here. Because you asked about strategies. We really had to start just telling stories about the impact on teachers and on uh, other education prof- um, workers. I had a teacher come up to me during this uh, contract struggle and she said, I can't think straight anymore. I I don't even know if I'm coming or going. We started to talk about the uh, holding management responsible for uh, destroying public education. 
And they they are just as worried about the bottom line as the manager at Nabisco. They, they're handed a budget. It's the middle management. They are sent in there to make cuts. They have opted to be in that role. I don't have sympathy for them. Uh, they chose the job. And uh, so they use emotional manipulation uh, to say, you know, you're, you're letting the kids down. And, um, and like you say, educators who are younger, you know, it's a solidarity issue. And that is, it's exactly the same. You may be able to work 90 hours now, but see if you want to do that 10 years from now. Look at your coworkers who, you know, have stu- um, children who have elderly parents. Uh, you need to think about more than just you right now. It's bigger than you. So this is going to be our last question for the panel, and then we're going to open it up to all of you, just a reminder. Um, but yeah, so a little over 100 years ago or so, um, the labor movement's sort of main demand was for shorter hours, right? We're in Chicago. This is where the Haymarket riot was, right? That was a rally for shorter working time. Um, and this, of course, you know, if we all know the, the Haymarket story, we know what happened to people um, fighting for a shorter working week. The labor movement likes to talk about we're the people that brought you the weekend. And then we signed it away in a contract, apparently. Um, so it just has not been for several decades that much of a priority for the labor movement. It was hard to get people interested in doing a panel about working time at Labor Notes. What happened, do you think? And should we be talking about a renewed movement, say, for the four-day or 32-hour week? What happened was COVID. <laughs> you know, it happened before COVID. It happened slow and you know, it happened so slow, we didn't realize it was happening. You know, we got more money with overtime and, you know, we appreciated it. And we were able to um, take care of our families with the overtime. But once COVID hit, it it changed the game. And and to me, it was a plan with corporate America way before COVID. Um, we just didn't see the plan. And the plan was to lessen the workforce. And once they lessened the workforce, the five-day 40-hour week went away. They knew what they were doing. It's kind of like gentrification. They knew. They knew before everybody else. It was a plan. I believe they sit in this room and, uh, you know, in my movie, and uh, <laughs> and they talk about what they're going to do next, which is why this labor note thing is so important so we can be ready for them. They, they thought, you know, why are we paying health care when we can get rid of this body? So what? They're getting time and a half or double time. You know, we can afford that. It's the health care that's killing us. If we don't have to pay for health care, such and such will have more money in his pockets, the shareholders. And so when they, you know, devise this plan of not hiring the people that leave, because there was a time when people left, they hired for that position. When they uh, stopped doing that and automation got more and they, and they let those people retire out, they just weren't bringing in the people, not realizing that at some point automation fails and you still need the people. So... um you know, it was, to me, it was a plan that's been in the making for a long time. Uh, I believe that it's a conversation that needs to happen. Time is very important, no matter what age you are. Overtime should always be an option versus a force. I understand there are emergencies at times. I get that. But right now in this country, it's not about the emergency. It's about the profit. 
I agree about COVID, and I agree that it was happening, building toward this. I think they're like pigs and you know what, that they have got a way to um, do lean production. You know, there there is a, a sense that, you know, the supply chain had no give. That's how schools are being treated right now. We, we are cutting down of the bone. We'll increase class sizes. We will uh, add responsibilities. We have no uh, community centers anymore in our community, so we're going to have teachers take care of the emotional and physical needs of students in the classroom. The good news, though, is that the failure of this society to actually take care of human needs is never been more obvious. And so the question really comes, I think, is, is this labor movement uh, prepared to be a radical visionary movement, you know, to say, we don't, it's, it's painful, we have to say this, but the, the 19th century labor movement, it's a history teacher here, you know, they were talking about what kind of society <laughs> there should be. And, you know, we lost that under neoliberalism. Um, we, we lost that since the 80s. Um, but I think there is tremendous potential right now for solidarity across all of these different sectors. And if you aren't going to pay for childcare, if you're not going to give people dignified jobs as, as childcare educators, then I'm going to have to stay home and do it. Like there, there, there is at least no question that the work of taking care of families is inescapable. <laughs> I don't know what they thought it was just going to be like secret. <laughs> you know, nobody was going to actually talk about it. And uh, because we're at a point of collapse uh, in terms of just the functioning of day-to-day life, it seems to me that uh, if the labor movement doesn't get in there and do it, nobody else is going to be. I'm for general strikes. I, I think we need to be prepared to say that we all together, all of our family members, you know, our aunts and our uncles and the parents and the kids uh, can't function. And I, but, I, but I do have some hope. I just want to quickly, talking about laws, in Massachusetts, this is super exciting. Um, we are gearing up. It's actually the educators' unions that are the main funders of it for what we call a millionaire's tax. It's on the ballot next uh, fall. It will tax a few pennies for every dollar over a million in income annually. Now you think, oh, what's a few pennies? It's $2 billion a year. And uh, all to go to education and transportation infrastructure. And the coolest thing that I want to share, because we're feeling excited, is at Fenway Park, when the Boston Red Sox were playing a couple weeks, a few weeks ago, um, a, up the side of this uh, construction site where they had that central piece where, you know, where the elevators go, like this big thing was like about 20 stories high, were the words, tax the rich. And every person in Fenway Park looked up and saw that that night. So uh, we are winning that campaign so far. And it's polling at 80%. And if we can get a, a story that uh, that is a multi, now I'm pontificating, sorry, a, a multiracial uh, working people's movement that will not be divided by race um, and will not uh, get, uh, you know, onto a different track. Um, we can win this thing. Yeah, I would echo a lot of what's already been said. Um, and also as a history teacher, I'll, I'll take it a little bit further back. Um, and in some, <laughs> in some ways. Um, so, I mean, really, in the last 40 years, and this is not going to be unfamiliar to anyone on this panel or in this room, you know, we've seen increasing productivity with stagnant wages, and that lines up 
pretty well with the neoliberal period that you mentioned, along with just decades and decades of decline in the labor movement, particularly militancy in the labor movement. I mean, you mentioned the eight-hour struggle that was born out of, you know, mass strikes, incredible amounts of violence, four anarchist workers were hung. So, you know, it's really, in terms of the, the question of why we're not seeing the demand of time put on the table more forcefully, it's really a balance of forces question. And the balance of power has been tilted so disproportionately on the other side that it is our task to rebuild that patiently, uh, brick by brick, building by building. Um, when when we won this campaign for Falcon Wednesday, we were the only building in my school district that had it. And that's a testament to workplace organization that simply didn't exist in other buildings. Um, and the same is true from the stories that we're hearing. The, the difference was workplace organization. Um, we need more of that, but we also need to ramp up the militancy, to your point, because we can sort of see these pockets of, of, of fights, but uh, the challenges that we're facing are a reflection of the broader social, political, and economic conditions that we're facing and the multi-layered crises <laughs> that we're grappling with. And unfortunately, it's going to take a lot more. So it is exciting that there is more of a conversation about time, and I think this panel is a reflection of it. But I think if we're going to push for what really is is needed, because even at that point when they were talking about the eight-hour day, um, there was a much broader vision, right, of not only uh, eight-hour day but abolishing the wage system, so on and so forth. So, you know, if we're going to start putting things like 24-hour work weeks on the table or things like that, um, we're really going to have to ramp up uh, our level of, of organization uh, and class struggle in a meaningful way. And I hope that these conversations, this conference and the renewed interest in unionization broadly will help push us in that direction because we got to take the fight up for sure. So we've got about 15 minutes for audience questions. So if we have hands for questions. Hi. So it seems to me in in my workplace that the employer has kind of used COVID as an excuse for why overworking has happened because like Donna Joe was saying, people have didn't realize what was happening to themselves or start complaining about it or doing something and organizing around it. Um, now that we're supposedly kind of coming out of COVID, how how are we keeping the the struggle and convincing managers management that it it happened before covid it's just that you you know you're not hearing about it because it took a fundamental collapse of society in some ways for people to realize just how burned out they were and and how much they were being overworked and like especially for carlos um and keeping falcon wednesday and ongoing like what what does it take for us to keep up that energy and that struggle to convince management that it's not just going to go back to normal and that we are actually going to carry forward the pain that we felt and put it on them to to make changes. You know, one of the things that a lot of us have heard again and again from educators this year is this year was worse than last year. And the reason is they started to say, okay, back to normal. Okay, now, you know, and and there was a willingness to at least try to be creative or just there was no time or energy to do anything but survive, you know, in from March 20 to 20, excuse me, to, to this year. So the, the rage really hit, um, this year. And so, uh, I, I do, I'm sorry to have to say that I, 
I, I have a very simplistic, let me say a simple view of this. You have to do what Carlos said. You got to be organized, which is a very practical issue. It's very nuts and bolts. You know, it's like, did you have the conversations? Did you, um, but did you go out and talk, which was what we ended up doing a thousand conversations one-on-one and a hundred people that were or set up to do it with a form to report back. We're going to be talking a little bit about the strike later in the weekend, but the, but the bottom line is if you are, if you're not willing to withhold your labor, they will keep dumping on you. That's my simple conclusion from our experience. And I've been doing this now for a while. And, uh, in one day we got what we couldn't get in eight years, including support from the community. Because when you demonstrate self-respect, it's amazing how people come out of the woodwork and suddenly like you, which, you know, we feel ambivalent about. But <laughs> We went on strike. It was just, we had to. Um, it was that issue along with other issues. Uh, COVID just woke us up to go now versus, like I said, we had been going five years without a contract. And since we've come back from strike, the company has worked on the normal schedule, 12 days on, two days off. People are still getting forced daily because the law hasn't passed yet, but it will. But you really have to show them your power and they will pussyfoot around. They will gaslight you, honey. They will whatever they can to make you think they're going to make a change. And it's this abusive relationship that you continue on. You have to break out of it. And if you have to be the leader to get it going, Trust me, you're not the only one feeling this way. It took us to go on strike to understand that the teachers, the nurses, UPS, Amazon, everybody had the same story. Everyone has the same story, just different industries. Excuse me. Um, No one's story is different. I hear the same thing. The same thing. We, We got so used to the madness that the dysfunction became normal. And when we start talking and we heard everybody is in this dysfunctional relationship, it it made me become a part of this bigger thing because it's bigger than Nabisco, BCTGM. It's bigger than teachers. It's bigger than nurses. It's all of us and all of us together. We have to find a way to come together to stand in solidarity with everybody. It was all the unions who came and stood with us on the strike. It was the community who got to hear our own personal stories and understand what we were going through, they were going through, and they came and stood with us. We had few people who would drive by and be like, ah, get a new job. Like, that's the answer. You know, (laughs) you're getting beat there, go get beat somewhere else. You know, pretty much is what they were saying. But it's not that simple. It's about this is where I work, this is where I want to continue to work, and I'm not going to get treated any kind of way to earn a paycheck. So you just have to stand up, fight, and if you have to strike, strike. And it's a scary word, and it's a scary place to be, but this is our time. This is the union's time right now to build back up, to become the strong unions that we are. This is our time. I I don't think it was our time two years ago. I don't think it was our time five years ago. This right here had to happen for us to understand that we're all abused. I would... 100% agree with all that uh, has been said in response to that question, um, particularly on the need for building up our capacity to to go on strike as as the core way to convince management. Um, 
of our needs. I know in in North Carolina, we were part of the Red for Ed teacher strike wave uh, in 2018 and 19. We we helped lead a statewide strike, and Durham was one of the core uh, locals to help push us in in, in that direction. And, and not only could you see this sort of shift. Uh, in terms of membership. So if you looked at a line graph of our membership, you, when you start to see it spike up, it's, oh, it's conveniently right around 2018, right? When people are like, see that you see that the union is willing to fight. It's when you start to see more workers in motion, right? There's, it's not a coincidence. Um, but I would say that I, I think a lot of times when people see strikes, uh, particularly at that scale, um, and, and the word itself is very sexy, right? Uh, and sort of the images and all of that. Um, I mean, we were obviously inspired by West Virginia and all the other folks going out. It created a moment for us. It's also very challenging to pull off. Um, and I think it's one thing, you know, we, we have all these Facebook groups of teachers where like every other hour on the hour, a teacher would be like, and that's why we need us right. And we're like, cool. Uh, you want to come to a meeting? And that person's ne- never nowhere to be found, right? So, so I will say, you know, I think it's on a couple levels. So you were talking about how do we convince management. I think it's also about how do we convince our coworkers, okay? And so this is the reason I was trying to emphasize these these campaigns that we're running in our building and what it took just for us to build up a workplace committee strong enough to, uh, you know, impose our will on management. Um, it starts with the small stuff. It's not sexy. You can't post about it on Instagram. Uh, no one cares that we changed our... Uh, parent-teacher night, okay? But when you can demonstrate to your coworkers what collective action and organization can do on a small scale, once you pick that low-hanging fruit, then you can start reaching higher and higher and higher. But it starts with those small fights. And so I think it's both a question of really emphasizing nuts and bolts, organization, uh, direct action and convincing ourselves that we have the capacity to impose our will on the bosses, um, and through that building up our capacity for things like a strike, like a general strike, these sorts of things. Hi, my name is Zara. I'm a graduate worker at Indiana University. We just finished a four-week strike last semester um, with over a thousand grads, so it was crazy. Um, so. Yeah, thinking back to what you mentioned about um, working for the good of COVID made me think about how educators, especially undergraduate education, um, we were sort of forced to accept like the technology and the new possibility and demands that came with that technology during COVID. Um, so, you know, we were expected to have hybrid classes these past semesters, which sort of forces educators to exist in two different timelines at once, you know, monitoring the chat and like making sure you're engaging the people on and offline. Um, But not just that, you know, you have students who do get COVID and you're expected to catch them up. So you're having more meetings with students than you did before. So I'm wondering how, how did you respond to those demands and yeah, how, how can one really justify um, claiming back one's time when, you know, it is important that students are caught up. It is important that they don't come to class if they have COVID. So, yeah, what do we do? <laughs> well, tell the truth. It's unsustainable. Um, and I, I think one one added piece I can share about our direct experience around the strike, because 
the outside world has a role to play. In other words, we thought there were formulas. You can't do this until you've done that, and you better do this. And, you know, you're never ready. You know, you're never ready to take the plunge. But um, at some point, the educator said, we did this for you. I mean, the, the boss, you know, the saying goes, is the best organizer. You know, last June, a year ago, uh, they offered 0% for that year. We were without a contract for three years. And so using, being willing to confront the, the adversary, the, the opposition, um, and to say, they, we have a different story to tell, and not to react to them. It's very difficult. And to stay off Facebook, by the way. <laughs> Yes, uh, to to find a way to to produce a story that is on your own terms, and to name the the um, management and the state. Because one of the things I I didn't get to say that I think helped us is that in Massachusetts, liberal Massachusetts, right? Not only is it uh, illegal to strike for your public employees, but they can impose a last best offer when they, when there's impasse. So what do you do if you're management? You stall long enough, and then you say it's impasse. And then, and we called that, uh, we, we said, and but also with our members, to your point about convincing them, we gave them a stark choice. That is, the, and they said, you either get off your butt and get into the meeting, right? <laughs> you, you either, you know, show up for this thing, this planning, or you accept a longer school day, speaking of time, for no extra pay, which is what was one of their poison pills. We could never accept. They were forcing us into impasse by giving us stuff they knew we wouldn't accept. So there's an education piece about how unfair the uh, legal the system is and, the, and labor law, and to say the law will not save you. It's the opposite. Mm-hmm. And so if anybody's going to help you out here, sorry, it's going to be you. So, so um, it's why I don't think you can just talk about your contracts in isolation. You gotta, you gotta show members what they're wor- what they're operating with in that larger space. And I do think that was important for moving people to be willing to strike. But it took some really jerky um, management too, some very arrogant management. But by pushing them, they push back. So, so, so analyzing the power dynamics helps, you know, with members. Like, well, here's where talk, 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 open, 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 transparency, open bargaining. Now I'm giving the other presentation, sir. I'm going to start sounding like a one-note person over here, but it does really, I think, boil down to a balance of forces question, especially when it comes to um, hybrid learning this particular case. So my brother's also a teacher uh, in Florida, uh, my home state, sadly. Um, And... They went to uh, hybrid learning very quickly and were back in the classroom like that, right? And when he called me and told me about the dystopian nightmare that is hybrid uh, learning, at no point was he like, and here's what we're going to do about it. It was just sort of a a fatalistic venting session, right? Um, Whereas on our end, we were the last district in the entire state of North Carolina to go back in person. Um, And part of that has to do with the fact that we were able to pose a credible threat to the district 
having gone on strike twice, right, we were able to leverage that pressure um, to say, you know, we're not going to go back in person. And I think you know what might happen if you try to force us to do that. And the same thing with hybrid learning. And then even at a more micro scale in my building, um, there were administrators and even some teachers, the same vocal minority that I mentioned earlier, who was opposed to Falcon Wednesday, um, that wanted to have us online doing remote learning five days a week. Okay. Um, and we got it down to essentially three days a week with that Wellness Wednesday. And Friday was a flex Friday, going back to the alliteration point I made. It was very important. Flex Friday and Wellness Wednesday. So we had basically, even though I would not wish, uh, you know, remote learning on my worst enemy, it's the most alienating, horrific uh, experience I've had to endure as a teacher. And if I had to do it one more year, I maybe would have quit. Um we only had to do it three days, and that was not the case for a lot of other schools in my district because, you know, we were able to kind of pressure admin not to make that happen. So I really want to stress that it is – oftentimes it does boil down to, you know, a balance of power question and your ability to pose a credible threat because sometimes even the threat of a strike can move things in your favor. You don't even have to go on strike, but if you're able to say we are willing and able and you've demonstrated that capacity – that alone can shift the balance of power in your favor. Um, but again, I, I agree with you that there's not this sort of like first A, then B, and then you get here. Sometimes it doesn't work like that. History is more messy, and sometimes opportunities present themselves, and conditions can accelerate and so on. Um, but at the same time, I think there's something to be said for nuts and bolts organizing and the patient work of just building workplace organization is, is key. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And that was Carlos Perez, Jessica Wender Schubot, and Donna Jo Marks speaking at our Belabored live event at the Labor Notes Conference in Chicago. Thank you to our panelists for a great conversation and special thanks to our live audience. And of course, thanks to Labor Notes for putting together an amazing conference. And as always, to Descent Magazine's Colin Kinneborough and Natasha Lewis for making us sound good. And remember, you can get all of our archived episodes at descentmagazine.org. If you have any feedback or story ideas that you'd like to share with us, if you have any of your own stories about working time or organizing around working time, or you have other thoughts about how the pandemic has impacted your work life, please get in touch with us on the Twitters at hashtag belabored, or you can reach us via email at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Thanks as always to our supporters who make the show possible every week with sustaining donations at Patreon, patreon.com slash belabored. You can donate at $3, $10, or $15 a month or any other number that you want and know that you help keep us bringing you content like this from working people around the country and the world. And we have some excellent rewards, including art and tote bags for the higher tiers of support. Our labor, like everyone else's, has value. And it's thanks to these donations that we can keep doing the work of Belabored. We'll be back with you in two weeks. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored. 